Judges 6. Let's talk about Gideon. He's one of my favorite Bible characters. He is an awesome example of overcoming lived experience. If you follow the news at all, follow any modern news story, any Instagram, the, the lingo of the day is my truth, my truth, my truth, my truth, my truth. I just read an article about a British um, Tory that's a politician, and he just came out as transgender. He just admitted the fact that he was raped on a date. He picked up on an app. Um, so you got a guy who's a homosexual. He was raped, and uh, now he's coming out as transgender, and he kept using the terms my truth. I've never been free or felt liberty to share my truth, and I'm coming out now. I'm coming out as transgender, and I want to share my truth, and everybody's just praising him. And I was like, what is your truth? The fact that you're admitting you hooked up with some random dude on Grindr, he would not consent to using a condom, therefore he sodomized you against your will and now you're trans, that's your truth. And this is what we're gonna base the rest of your life on. This is why we totally reject the, the concept of my truth. Because when people say my truth, what they mean is I'm not changing and I expect you to change. Now is that not selfish? Are we not to adapt ourselves? And as a gentleman, the old term for gentleman means someone who makes other people feel comfortable. Someone who makes other people feel important, feel welcome. That's what a gentleman is. They are a man who is gentle or genteel towards one another. But when you start espousing my truth, what you're saying is the whole world has to bend for me. I was taught that was selfish. I was taught while I was usually being beat, boy, this world doesn't revolve around you. But somehow we change that notion into my truth, which means my world revolves around me. And we've made a whole notion out of it. And the bigger your victimhood, the bigger and more authoritative your truth is. And that's why we reject it, because that's all heresy and antichrist. When you espouse your truth, and when that's what defines you, you make that your gospel. You become more obsessed with espousing and declaring that than Jesus Christ and his truth. And you, hopefully you can recognize that our culture in this nation is trying to teach us to be excited to be victims. And if you can be excited to be a victim, then you never have to overcome the ramifications of your trauma. And that's wicked. And that's what the devil wants. So we reject it. That's why we've spent several weeks, almost two or three months now, looking at these stories of people who started off one way, but if God was going to be able to do anything with them, they were going to have to change. And so people don't really want to be used by God on God's terms. They want to use God on their terms. And that's not how it works, honey. You don't get to use God. You qualify to be used by him. And as long as you're building your life on your truth and your experience and your trauma, God's never going to be able to use you like he wants to. So we've been purposely looking at all these stories where people started off with a certain direction, and to be used of God, they had to be recalibrated. If you don't want to be recalibrated, you're not going to be of much use to God. I like it, the, the Old Testament just summed it up pretty easily. You're nothing but a ball of clay. Let him shape you. And then he goes on to say, the pottery can't say to the potter, why have you thus made me? Just shut up. Throw some water on you. I'm going to make you whatever shape I want you to be. You submit, as the old song goes, to the potter's hand. Any clay, I used to do pottery. I was not good at the wheel. I was very good at sculpting. Any clay that cannot be sculpted, you trash. With clay, you're dealing with terracotta or ceramic, very fine-grained uh, clay. 
clay has a shelf life, literally, that as it dries out, it gets harder and harder and harder. And once it gets past a certain point, you cannot use it on the wheel anymore. You could use it to sculpt because it's getting tougher and you can do more fine-grained carving with tools. Uh, but on the wheel, it has to be soft. There comes a point when the clay is so hard, even though it's still somewhat pliable, it's, it's useless to the wheel. Now, you can salvage it if you take it over the table, the kneading table, and you spread it out and you mix water in it and you smush it together and you keep and that. But you're not on the wheel when you're doing that. You're starting from scratch. And that might be a good analogy because these techniques go back thousands of years that you can get to a place where you're so stubborn, so tough, so dried out, God can't sculpt you anymore. He can't form you. So he has to take you off the wheel, postpone your destiny, throw you on the table, pound you, put water on you, rub it into you, roll it over. Then we have these giant uh, canvas rags we used and we damped it down and made it wet again. So you got it back to this pliable clay. And it may be something worth noting that maybe we can get to that place in our life where we're so tough, so stubborn that God can't shape us anymore and you're just stuck the shape you are. I don't want that to be me. If you're in that position, would you be willing to submit to God throwing you back on the table, not the wheel, the table, pounding you out, adding the water of the Holy Ghost to you, softening your heart, making you pliable again, or are you just hell-bent, this is who you are? Because the whole notion of my truth, that's a defense mechanism that says I'm not changing. All right, well, then you're useless. You can't ever say this is just who I am. You have to say, Lord, who do you want me to be? I submit to you. You can't ever say, well, you don't know where I've come from. We don't care where you've come from. That's good for you. Well, you haven't walked a mile in my shoes. Have you asked me where my shoes have been? Is it, see how selfish it is? You don't know what I've been through. You know why? Because you've never asked. And you know why? Because I don't advertise it. Because I'm not trying to go back there. To walk a mile in my shoes, we'd have to all backslide together. To walk a mile in your shoes, we'd have to all backslide together. So how about we just like let the trail reclaim itself in the bush of humanity and move on forward for Jesus? Amen. Quit playing the victim. Quit singing that old Negro spiritual. Nobody knows trouble I've seen. Sung that song around here, making fun of it for years. Nobody knows but Jesus. He knows, and he's tired of listening to you bellyache. Because in Christ, you're more than conquerors. In Christ, you're a world overcomer. And on top of that, do you not recognize what stinking nation you live in? The whole of the world comes to us to do better. And they look at us and say, y'all are lazy and shiftless. Get out of my way and I'll take your jobs and your scholarships and your degrees and I'll run your economy. And they do. Because we're too busy singing our sad song, playing the victim card. Get out of the way. Let the Lord put somebody else on the wheel. You're taking up the potter's time. Hmm, pretty good preaching. Judges 6, verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Did you know that when parents do evil, children suffer? So it may be you were raised under pagans who gave you nothing but a sinful inheritance and a victim mindset. Curse them both to hell, not your parents. The sinner inheritance and the victim mindset. And be a new lump. Purge out the old leaven. Let's go on for Jesus. But it's spiritual law. When the parents sin, the kids suffer. 
That's why we do children's outreaches because we want to get children saved that they might be delivered, that they might not fall, uh, walk in the shoes of their parents, the footsteps. The children of Israel, that means the families, the adults, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hands of Midian seven years. So that's punishment. You know, when you're sinful, things fall apart for you. When you're sinful, your culture degrades. When you're sinful, your lineage rots. When you're sinful, your business implodes. When you're sinful, your marriage implodes. When you're sinful, your kids go weird. It's not God's fault. It's your fault. We always want to blame everybody but us. If there's nothing else you'll learn in this church is that you must take responsibility and walk with Jesus for yourself. Verse 2. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Why? Because Israel was sinful. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel were ma made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. They no longer had liberty. Because of their own sin, they now lived in bondage. Because of their own sin, they were afraid to go outdoors. Because of the sin of their heart and the sin of their culture and the sin of their minds and the sin of their families, they were terrified to even walk in their own streets. They lived in caves and dens. They didn't even get to inhabit the houses they wanted to for fear of these oppressors. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth. They didn't come in to kill the people. They came in just to ransack their crops. How discouraging is that? You go to make a living. You go to plant your wheat. You go to plant uh, your grapes and your olives. You go to have a harvest and your enemies camp against you just to stomp your crops into the ground. If they wanted to kill the people, they would have killed the people. But God didn't want them to kill the people. The, God, the Lord wanted them to oppress the people. This was torment brought upon them by their own sin. I, I want us to stop and think where we've come from. Quit playing the victim card. Get away from where you came from. Quit trying to circle back and say, you don't understand. God does, and he's having me tell you right now, shut up and move on. You don't understand. I don't have to understand. I know what the Lord, the Lord is saying right now, and it's quit playing that dumb card and move on for Jesus. Well, I was raped. I'm sorry. Have you forgiven and moved on? Well, I, it was horrific growing up. Welcome to America. Move on. Well, it was so tough. Shut up and move on. <laughs> it's only tough because you want to be a victim and you want to exploit something from 20 years ago to excuse you from responsibility today. And God won't let that fly. What will happen is if you don't divorce yourself from that lazy attitude, you'll give it to your kids. And now we have generational victimhood, generational poverty, generational anger, generational bitterness, generational sin, generational defeat, generational corruption. What a horrible inheritance to give your children. You ought to look at your kids and say, honey, we're well able. We can do anything. Not only are we born again, we live in a free land. Anybody can go to college if they want to, and chances are somebody else is going to pay for you to do it. That's how it works anymore. I'm actually upset. My family paid for my education, but I could have gotten some of you to do it. Just had to like go into debt and then complain about how dumb I was to go into debt, and somebody should erase that debt. If we're going to wipe away student loans, we should wipe away house mortgages and car payments. 
Shouldn't we? I mean, I, I shouldn't have bought that Maserati. But would you please wipe out 100 grand in debt for me? It's really simple. Don't go to expensive schools that don't give you an education. Go get you a good trade degree. Fix cars, fix plumbing, fix houses, make 85 grand a year. Or go get you a master's degree in some kind of gender studies and make coffee the rest of your life. <laughs> or work at a weird bookstore with your pink highlights and black nails, dude. Nothing says I have a useless graduate degree like that. They encamped against him and destroyed the, uh, the increase of the earth till thou come into Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor, ax, nor uh, ox nor ass. They didn't just wipe out their crops. They took away all their livestock. For they came up with their cattle and their tents and they came as grasshoppers for multitude for both they and their camels were without number and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. The Midianites inflicted the judgment of God, but make no mistake about it. The Israelites were impoverished because of their sin. Dr. Sumrall said, you'll never fix sin throwing money at it. Excuse me. You'll never fix poverty throwing money at it. That was a man who traveled to over 100 countries in the world back before there were supersonic airplanes. The first half of his journeys were on boats and mule back and trains. He saw poverty all over the world. He saw one thing in common, sin. He said over and over again, Lester Sumrall, world-class missionary for 70 plus years, you'll never fix poverty throwing money at it. Because poverty is a sin problem. My Bible tells me so. Not a sociologist, not an economist. My Bible. I agree with my Bible over the academic. Poverty is a spirit. Poverty is an attitude. Poverty is an excuse. Poverty is rooted in sin. These were prosperous people who when they left their God, lost all their prosperity. So stop blaming everybody around you. Look for your sin. Is it the sin of laziness? Is it the sin of I'm owed something? Is it the sin of it's too hard? Is it the sin of that I can just get unemployment or I can get workman's comp? If you can work, you should work because if you don't work, neither should you eat. They were greatly impoverished because of the Israelites and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. They couldn't go apply for anything from the government because there was no government. Nowadays, when folks are impoverished, they cry out to the government for assistance or they go burn down a city. It's not how it's designed to work. When you hurt, you're supposed to cry out to God. Even children are smart enough to get this. Today, Lydia smashed her fingers. She was lifting up her piano stand and it collapsed and she got her finger caught and she was screaming and all because she could say, get mommy, get mommy, get mommy, get mommy, get mommy. She didn't say, call the federal government. <laughs> Arrange a protest. I've been oppressed. She's smart enough to call out to her parent. Get mommy, get mommy, get mommy. I was upstairs. I don't think she realized I was here. Otherwise, it might have been, get daddy, get daddy. But as soon as she calmed down, she comes up my stairs. Pray for it, pray for it, pray for it. That is, get God's help, get God's help, get God's help. <laughs> Israel, for all their stupidity and all their rebellion, at least knew to call out to the Lord. Because he's merciful. Verse 7, And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet 
So you cry out to God, God sends a man or a woman, prophetess, here's a man. That shows us that our help often comes in the form of a human being. Israel cried out to God and, they, and God sent Moses. Israel cried out to God, God sent Saul. Israel cried out to God, God sent David. The help of God often comes in a human being. Someone anointed, usually the rebuke. Not every cry from God is answered with a hug. Sometimes what you need is a good smack and a rebuke that says, quit being dumb. You know better than this. Amen. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto the Lord, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the, God of the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. That's the only help they got. God help, God help, God help. Help us, we're poor. And the answer was, you've yet to repent of your sin. But that's mercy when you can see where you've brought upon yourself your own destruction, when you can see where you've brought upon yourself your own judgment, your own poverty, your own demise, that's mercy. Because what is implied here is repent and watch it all turn around. The prophet comes and it isn't there, there, my children, my children, I shall deliver thee now. I will be with thee in seven afflictions. Yes, in eight, I shall deliver thee. There's nothing warm and fuzzy about it. It's a remembrance of what the covenant was. These were the terms. You said yay, and now you say no, and boom, it's your fault. And yet that's the mercy of God. When you can realize where your role is, that's such deliverance. You ought to say, Lord, just show me what to do. Just show me how I fix this, and I'll fix it. They cry unto God because they're heavily oppressed. Notice it takes seven years to hit pain. They're oppressed seven years before they cry out to God. Why are folks that stubborn? Why will folks endure oppression for that long? Does it take seven years before you realize you're the only common denominator in all your oppression and failures? I mean, are we that dumb? I think humans are. It shouldn't take seven years to realize, you know what, nothing's working. Have we tried God? No, no, it can't be God. It can't be us. Let's, let's just keep working. We can get ourselves out of this. It was only after seven years of oppression did it hit hard enough for them to say, we should probably try God. God's answer is, you failed me. You broke our covenant. You rebelled. This is your fault. They don't repent straight away. Verse 11. This would seem to imply that at the same time, God is appearing to a young Gideon. There came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was at Orpha, that pertained unto Joash the Abizarite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress, or in the winepress, to hide it, or hide from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, we just ascertained from the previous verse, he's hiding from the Midianites, and God says you're a man of valor. Here we have Gideon's truth versus God's truth. This is why we totally reject and curse to hell the modernist notion of your truth. I do not care about your truth. 
because chances are it's going to mock Christ, blaspheme him, and call his Bible a liar. Gideon's truth is I'm terrified and I'm hiding from the Midianites threshing wheat in a hole dug out in stone. God's truth is I am with you, you mighty man or woman of fearless valor. And when you hear that for the first time, it doesn't feel like truth at all because you're so convinced of your own truth. You're the biggest believer of your own truth, the biggest propagator of your own truth, and the biggest promoter of your own truth. And you hashtag it. And you probably will follow up with a rainbow flag on your emoji list. Because that's what truth, your truth leads to. Compromise. So we see right off, he's hiding from the Midianites, but God says, you are fearless and full of courage. And in that moment, Gideon has to make a choice, as we all do. Do I believe the lies of mama and the culture from whence I come and embrace the truth of my God that I'm hearing for the first time? Or do I reject my God who I claim to serve and have cried out to and stick with my upbringing? We always have to cross that threshold. We have to make that choice. Your heart should be, I choose God. Thank God for mama. Thank God for daddy. Thank God for the auntie that raised me. Thank God for the uncle that raised me. Thank God for the grandfather that raised me. Or the orphans or the pack of dogs that raised me. Thank God for them. They kept me alive. But from today forward, I go with Jesus. Because in this moment, Gideon's going to come out of this wine press and he's never going back. If Gideon does not reject his truth, he lives in that wine press the rest of his life. Now let's look at the cultural setting here. When you threshed wheat in these times, the threshing floor was a community threshing floor. So the whole village shared it. We even know what village it is there. <clears throat> the Abizarites in Ophrah, a village that's a town. It's a community threshing floor. Typically, they would have put down stone, so it was cobbled stone. You'd bring your harvest there, and you'd, you'd beat it with a flail, or you'd let the oxen step on it to break the heads of wheat, or you'd drag a threshing sledge around it in circles. Typically, it was set outside of the city where the prevailing winds could blow upon it when you would then winnow it and throw it up in the air. So it was a public thing. He cannot thresh wheat publicly because they're under Midianite oppression. And we've already established that the Midianites are destroying crops. So the very fact that he has a harvest at all is pretty miraculous. I speculate he may have gone in and gleaned extras at night because the threshing floor is big. It's about the size of the sanctuary, maybe about half the size of the sanctuary. And a wine press is about the size of maybe the bandstand up there. It's much smaller. So he doesn't have much of a harvest to thresh. When you have freedom and liberty, you do stuff publicly and openly. But they're oppressed, so he does things secretly. Not only is he in a hole about three or four feet deep, he has a big oak tree giving him line of sight protection so nobody can see what he's doing in there as he's beating wheat to break the grains free. If he doesn't make this decision to go with Jesus, the rest of his life is in that hole. Having a puny harvest meal after meal. Not even getting to use an ox to break up the grains. He has to do it himself with a stick, which is miserable and harder work. Everything about him has been oppressed and robbed. He has a choice here though. Do I stick with what I know or go with the God I claim to know? We all come to that crossroads. It's a choice. It's a choice you make every day. 
It's a choice that's, that becomes manifest by where you live. Do you live in a hole or do you live publicly? Because when you walk with God, you go thresh wheat out in the open and you dare the enemy to come after you. When you believe what mama taught you, what your culture taught you, you're going to spend the rest of your life threshing wheat in a hole by yourself for meager rations. That's just the promises of sin and your truth. You don't understand. We already ascertained I don't care. You don't get it. I don't want to get it. It's not helping you any, so why don't you get rid of it? See, you understand your opinions have not promoted your life. Why do you hang on to them? Your lived experience has not promoted you in the kingdom. Why are you still basing a life on it? At some point, you realize everything you believed in was a lie and junk, and you reject it for something better. Have you ever thought about following winners? I started doing judo and jujitsu in January of 1995 when nobody had heard of judo or jujitsu except the small niche group. And I got to watch UFC number four live on pay-per-view. And in those days, satellite dishes were bigger than your cars. And I went to Dr. Larry's house. He was a local anesthesiologist out of Livingston. We watched UFC. And in those early UFCs, Ultimate Fighting Championship, those were the good old days because all the distinct martial arts were on display. The Kung Fu came out with his red sash, the Kung Fu artist. The Judo player came out with his white gi. The Sambo player came out without a shirt on. The Muay Thai guy came out in his, his kickboxing pants and his wrapped wrists. Everybody came out in their regalia so you could distinguish it. And after about 10 of those UFCs, they all realized jujitsu always wins. Who cares about karate and taekwondo? And everybody went to jujitsu because they were tired of being losers. <laughs> and now if you watch UFC, you know, number 3064, everything is either Muay Thai punching or grappling jujitsu. There's no karate to be seen. There's no sumo to be seen. There's no Kung Fu to be seen because none of it works. At some point, you got to realize the horse you're racing on is a loser. Where you come from is Loserville. What mama taught you in that area, don't work. Why pass it on to the next generation? Sometimes you got to recognize that the track you're listening to is an eight track. And you need to get rid of it. Otherwise, you're going to stay in this dugout wine press, barely getting by the rest of your life. And God may expect you to be a Gideon to deliver your people. Verse 13, Gideon said unto him, oh, my Lord, that's not uppercase Lord, that is master, sir, because he doesn't know he's talking to yet. If the Lord, there's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, if the Lord be with us, and Gideon misspeaks here because God didn't say God is with us. He said God is with you. Verse 12 says, Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Gideon doesn't hear it that way because his upbringing perverts his listening. If the Lord be with us, and the angel didn't say the Lord is with Israel, he said the Lord is with you. The only person the Lord said he's with. If the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And why be, where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. I want you to see that 
Gideon's culture, Gideon's training, Gideon's lived experience is hindering and in, in, uh, prohibiting his ability to hear accurately from God. It's clear what he says, the Lord is with you. If the Lord's with us, didn't say that. If the Lord's with us, where is his power? Where are his miracles? We've heard the stories. Why has this happened to us? The Lord didn't say us. He said you. This is why you got to really judge your lived experience, judge your culture, judge mama's doctrine, judge daddy's doctrine, judge the hood you're from, the neighborhood, the wherever, the ghetto, the subdivision, the trailer park, the hill, the valley, the holler, the high-rise apartment. Judge where you're from and see where have they trained you to hear God wrong. Because sure, it's, perver- it's perverting his ability to receive from God. It's, it's almost like bending it. It's refracting his ability to hear we all do the same thing. We all see and hear God through culture. And it's going to hurt us over and over again. I was just telling, I was just telling, I think, Schmitty before service, we were talking about Pastor Okwokwo, and uh, Pastor Okwokwo never prophesied. He believed in it. I, I only ever saw him once in the six or seven years I was honored to be close to him. I only ever saw him prophesy once. And he stood right over here, and he said, in one of our services, He said, I prophesy that in five years' time, this church will not contain what God is wanting to do. And I wrote that down because Pastor Okwoko did not prophesy. He believed in it, he operated in it, but he was just drying some things up in that season. So I thought, praise God, it's going to come to pass because that man walks with God and he doesn't ever prophesy first. So for him to stop and introduce and pronounce, I'm prophesying now, this is a word from God. So I'm anticipating, you know, like rapid church growth, though I was opposed to it then like I am now, but I thought, well, maybe that's what God wants to do. We'll be busting out the seams and we'll have to move to a different building. I had no idea it would mean we would buy these buildings and in five years time, we would have remodeled the kid's wing and have purchased this and trying to figure out what to do with it. It came to pass in five years time. I was culturally interpreting the word of the Lord and I was wrong. And I could only see it after the fact. I'd hate to... I would hate for the after fact to be heaven. To get to heaven and realize I interpreted the Bible wrong my whole life because I forced it through a filter called my cultural lived experience. One of the most powerful things Pastor Okwokwo ever taught me was that God cares nothing about your culture. And he said, and he cares nothing about my culture, Nigerian culture. He said, brother, God has given us the kingdom's culture. And he would always exalt that above anything Nigerian, anything American. He was always in search of God's culture. Let's keep reading. Verse 14, and the Lord looked upon him and said, go in this your might. Again, we change a pronoun, not their might, your might. And you, personal pronoun pointed directly at Gideon. And you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent you? And he said unto him, O my Lord, that is master or sir, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold my family. Here's where his lived experience kicks in. My family is poor in Manasseh. That's the least and most insignificant of the 12 tribes. My family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. What he doesn't add is also, and my father is the pagan priest, because that's truth as well. 
He leaves that out. I don't know why. Maybe he doesn't want to mention it. Maybe he can't see that his dad is part of the problem. Because the first assignment Gideon gets is to go destroy his family's legacy. What does his dad do? He is the priest of Baal. Who is Baal? The God of the Midianites, the God of the Amalekites, the very sin that has caused this oppression and this poverty. Gideon fails to see he's part of the problem. Gideon fails to see his dad is part of the problem. Gideon fails to see that his family contributes to their own oppression and their own poverty. When your dad is the village priest for Baal and Asherah, you're the problem. This might be why you're poor, Gideon. And it doesn't occur to him because this has been a seven-year experience for him. We don't know how old Gideon was, maybe a teenage boy, maybe 20. But if, if from the time you're 13, you spend seven years oppressed and this is all just normal to you, it's just normal to you. Maybe his dad was a priest longer than that and finally the scales tipped and the sin was too egregious. Maybe he had been the high priest of Baal Gideon's whole life and didn't recognize we can't have two gods. It's either Jehovah or nothing. We can't have Jehovah and Baal and Asherah. Maybe for Gideon, this is just normal. He doesn't see that you have to reject this because his parents haven't taught him. But somebody's taught him the stories because he knows God delivered us from Egypt. God did miracles, signs, and wonders. He doesn't say, my father taught me this. He says, our fathers have taught us this. Maybe... Gideon's going to have to wake up and realize where he comes from, his lineage is cursed. Because you can only go as far as you're willing to sacrifice from the past. Some of us still try so hard to identify with where we come from. And it's pride, it's arrogance, it can be idolatry. Well, I come from a family of motorcyclists, so get redeemed. We come from a family of boxers. We fight. Repent. Uh, we come from a family of drinkers. It just runs in my blood. I hope to God it doesn't. Let's get you delivered. Why do we fight for where we come from? The New Testament says, be established in present truth. That's Peter. So maybe you shoveled some truth 30 years ago. Great. Yay. What about present truth? Quit using your past as an excuse to stay a deadbeat. Quit using your past as an excuse to stay the same. Quit using your shame, your trauma, your whatever happened to you as a reason why you can't be a mighty man or woman of valor. Quit trying to chase reparations for what was done to you 10 years ago. Come on. If we were going to do reparations, let's just go ahead and reset the whole thing, which is what we're marching towards anyway, and move on. But you and I know, because we're not morons, that even if we distribute all wealth tomorrow, by the end of next week, we'll have billionaires and poor again. Because money does not fix poverty. Wisdom and repentance does. People are poor because they're not educated. People are poor because they're lazy. People are poor because they mishandle money. Poverty is a mindset and it's taught. Amen. And I've seen real poverty. American poverty is not poverty. When you have a flat panel bigger than mine and my tax dollars bought it for you, you're not poor. You're a social leech. <laughs> Amen. When you're, my tax dollars feed you, you're not poor. Real poverty is when you go through dumpsters to feed your babies. 
Verse 16. The Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with you, and you will smite the Midianites as one man. God totally ignores the defense of his family or the excuse of his family. When God ignores your family, it's best just to move on. You see several excuses. How can this be? I am not courageous. My family's the least. And the Lord just says, you're a mighty man of valor. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. You're just going to do it. 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 He has to keep telling them you're just going to do it because the kid has to hear it to believe it because faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing. Verse 17, and he said to him, if now I found grace in your sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee and bring forth my present, set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until you come again. He brings him an offering. Verse, um, verse 25, it came to pass the same night. So apparently this offering indicates that Gideon is willing to go along with the plan, but he doesn't even know what the plan looks like. And that goes for all of us. When we give our life to Christ, we have no idea where that ends up. Even tonight, as wise as we might be or educated, we have no idea what 20 years from now holds, if the future even holds another 20 years. We have no idea what we're going to be doing five years from now. But we still sign on with God and we trust him to make us what we need to be, which means we have to decrease. We have to decrease. When you decrease, you don't get offended. When you decrease, you don't have rights. When you decrease, you don't fight for your own voice. When you decrease, you just say, Lord, whatever you want next, I'll do. You bought me. I belong to you. Use me. When you decrease, you can tell there's not much fight left because you're supposed to be crucified with Christ. Crucified people don't have rights if you didn't know that. Neither do slaves. Guess what? You're a crucified slave. Why are you still squawking? Because you're not fully a servant. You're not fully crucified yet. Some of us are so American. God's trying to help us crucify and we're trying to tell him where to put the, the nail. No, I wouldn't do that. No, no. He's going to say, shut up, because you're about to lose both hands. Yes, uh, no, no, Lord, I don't, no, no. Bless me in Jesus' name. No. <laughs> Verse 25 says, it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, take your father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the grove that is by it. So the grove is for Asherah, the female counterpart to Baal. These are both demon entities. They are demonic. They have the roots that go way back. Build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place and take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove, which thou shalt cut down. So the assignment is, it's a baby step. And here we can receive encouragement because the Lord doesn't expect us to become warriors overnight, but he does expect us to start burning things down in our own house first. Don't worry about leading a church if you can't purge your own home. Don't worry about leading God's people if you can't even lead yourself. And don't worry about bringing revival to the nation when you can't even revive your own family. New Testament echoes the same thing, that if you want to be an elder or a bishop, you got to first rule well your own house and pull the slack out of them. So the commandment follows that pattern. He says, hey, by the way, if you didn't realize it, your dad's part of the problem. Your culture is part of the problem. Where you're from is part of the problem. I mean, the same thing's happening to us today. 
We struggle to march on with Jesus because of the baggage of our past. We struggle to view God the way we need to view God because of how we were raised. This is why any culture that doesn't have fathers is a cursed culture. Because without having a father in your life, you have no idea how to relate to the father God. You have no idea what it is to be disciplined. You have no idea what it is to be thumped. You have no idea what it is to be reined in or stressed. You have no idea what it is to be commanded. When all you have is a mother, even society recognizes it perverts a culture. When a culture is raised by women without fathers, it's a cursed culture that will implode upon itself. This culture, he says, your dad is the problem. Gideon's been making excuses. The Lord's ignored it because the first assignment points to the problem. The problem is your dad is the soothsaying priest. Your dad worships the gods that have brought this judgment. So if I'm going to use you, you need to purge your own home. So that's what we do. That's part of discipleship. We look to see where we were taught wrong. We look to see where we were taught wrong motives, wrong attitudes, wrong perspectives. We judge everything from our past through the word of God. And that becomes difficult because if we live through it, it can feel more real than words on a page. But we don't walk by sight. We don't walk by feelings. We walk by the word of God. This Bible has to be more real to us than grandmama. This Bible has to be more real to us than our church we were raised in. We have to let the word of God be the final say on everything if we're going to be used by God. We'll have to tell our emotions and our lived experience, shut up 10,000 times and exalt the word of God above it 10,001 times to get the victory. But that's discipleship. This first assignment for Gideon, he's already committed by with this offering. He's saying, Lord, I consecrate my life to whatever you want. He doesn't have a clue what the problem is. He's going to have to learn it as he goes. The first assignment is purge your house, purge your culture, purge your soul. And then we'll start on from there. And it's not easy. Burning down the idols and the altars of your own house is not easy because they've been there for so long. What, what will we do when the altar's gone? Plant flowers. I don't care. What will we do without the altar? Build a better one for Jesus. What will we do with all that time? Go to church. What will we do with all that money? Support a missionary. You're worried about what you're going to do with all this free time the idols took from you? He says, uh, verse 27, Then Gideon took ten men of his servants. Well, he can't be that poor. He has ten slaves himself. Notice how many excuses creep in. It doesn't say these were all of his servants. This kid, who's the least in his father's house, is over more than 10 slaves. So there's some kind of warped perspective here. Because the previous verses said you felt like he was just poor trash at the bottom of the barrel of the tribe of Manasseh in his dad's house, but he still has more than 10 servants to command. It's so true today. No matter how bad we think it, we have it, we're way better than what we really suspect. Because lived experience diffuses any responsibility. Excuses diffuse any accountability. You just don't understand I have it so bad. Really, you have a smartphone in your pocket? That's more technology than put the man on the moon. You got food in your stomach? You're doing better than everybody in Ukraine right now. You have AC? You got heat? Doing better than everybody in Russia right now. 
Did you drive here? Doing better than most people in Africa. How bad is it you have? Well, I had trauma 20 years ago. Trauma happens every day. I, it ripped my heart out today, checking the news. I watched the video, don't know why I watched it. For a little boy, a little bit older than Bud, my son, Bud Bud, laying in ICU somewhere in Ukraine with tubes coming out of his nose, discombobulated, saying, where's my daddy? Where's my daddy? Is my, and the subtitles, is my daddy coming? Is my daddy coming? The boy looked like my son, skinny little white kid, blonde, bushy hair, and looked like my son in two years. And I got so emotional thinking, I got no problems in this whole world. And I dare anybody to complain to me, I'll, I'll pull a Will Smith on them. I will lay them out. <laughs> and I'll get an Oscar for it. I dare anybody complain when this little boy is lost, his family's been bombed, doesn't know where his dad is. And just to hear his, his seven-year-old heart say, is my daddy even coming? That's what the subtitles kept saying. Is my, and they showed another angle and you could tell he was, my heart hurt. I'm sorry, and how bad is your life? That's why you don't have permission to live alone because your loneliness will talk you into the weirdest corrupt perversion. And you will need a good dose of Will Smith across your face to bring you into reality. <laughs> Welcome to Miami. He had 10 servants and he did as the Lord had said unto him. And so it was because he feared his father's household and the men of the city. So the whole city worships this idol that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night, but at least he's obeying. Get people around you to help you. Don't you know these servants, they're in trouble too if they get busted. We're about to destroy the, the city's temple. We're about to destroy the city's altar. We're about to destroy the city's gods. But we're going to obey God. But that's when he signified, Lord, I divorce myself from the culture of my upbringing that I might embrace divine truth and reject my truth. Do you not see how much we make idols out of our culture? Well, Southern by the grace of God. Really? How about your parents had sex and this is where you were born? <laughs> Southern by the grace. Man, God, God's squirting kids out all over this planet. I don't know if we call that the grace of God or just the miracle of childbirth. We make idols out of being Southerners. We make idols out of being Yankees. We make idols out of being Africans. We make out of idols out of being Afri uh, uh, Latins or Latinos. We, you can make an idol out of anything. At this point, he says, I no longer identify with my people. You know why I don't identify with them? They're sinners. And I'm not siding with sinners. I go with God. And he thrusts a sword into the heart of his cultural sin, burns it, and makes an altar unto God. Wouldn't to God we could do that with our culture, our tradition, our family values that are so southern and redneck and white trashy, and just go with Jesus or whatever your cultural sin is, because we all got some. If, if you haven't advanced, I guarantee you it's because of how you were raised. If you haven't advanced, if you're struggling to advance, I guarantee you it's because it's how you were raised. And that is the symbolism here. Destroy the altars of your family. Destroy the idols of your household. Well, that's not how I was raised. God doesn't care. It's time to change. Pastor Vaughn would have said, it's time to change your raising. 
well, it wasn't my family. You got a new family. Quit making excuses. Go on for Jesus. Verse 28, when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down and the grove was cut down that was by it. They cut down all the trees. These are like totem poles. That's what a grove is. That Native Americanism that we still try to romanticize, you forget Native Americans worship demons. Native Americans enslaved each other because slavery has been practiced by everybody. Native Americans enslaved Africans when they were introduced to this continent. Native Americans enslaved whites when this continent was colonized by Europeans. Native Americans worshiped demons and many still do. They sacrificed each other. They enslaved each other. They were barbaric to each other. And here we are trying to make a Pocahontas film and romanticize the whole thing. So now what we do in reparations is we build casinos on their territory without tax payment. And they're good with that. And Native Americans have a 95% alcohol rate. Still oppressed. Because they worship the gods of their forefathers. So an Asherah grove is basically a network of totem poles. Native Americans weren't the first to have totem poles. Demons love to be worshipped through totem poles. Anyway, so they cut them down. The second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, who has done this thing? And when they, said, when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, had done this thing. The preacher's kid did it. <laughs> Then the men of the city said unto us, bring out your son that he may die because he's cast down the altar of Baal and because he hath cut down the grove that was by. But these are the same people that just cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, deliver, Lord, deliver, Lord, deliver. And the Lord says, you haven't repented. They have opportunity to repent. And what do they want to do? They want to murder the preacher. This is why the Lord didn't deliver them because he knew there was no repentance yet in their heart, just a hungry belly. Do you see, the same city that cried out for God was sent a prophet that said, repent. And when repentance begins and their idols are destroyed, they are angry, which demonstrates what God already knew. You have no repentance in you yet. I want God. Then let me confront your perverse culture of your upbringing. How dare you, you racist, bigot, homophobe, transphobe, Islamophobe, phobophobe, phobe. You don't want God. Isn't it funny when you disagree, all you can do is call names like a middle school child? I was raised in the 80s. Our playgrounds were over asphalt. We didn't have this ASTM rubberized bark that you can bounce off of. We played for keeps at five. All of our playground equipment was steel. And I played on it in Louisiana. You develop third degree burns on any flesh. And what wasn't burned was scarred from asphalt. Frank, remember those monkey bar domes? And we got on them, hung upside down by our knees, face first into asphalt. And if kids didn't bleed at PE, we used to have PE. That stood for physical education. Now we have a bunch of butter balls on TikTok. So our playground, middle school was, or I'm talking primary school, this is kindergarten. It's Lord of the Flies. It's live or die. Before there was ever Katniss Everdeen in the Hunger Games, there was elementary grade 70s and 80s education. (laughs) 
And we were taught, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. So we called each other names, called each other's mama's names. We didn't care. We didn't fall apart. So that's my generation. So you can call me a fat phobe, homophobe, Islamophobe, judgmental, judgy, judgy. And I just say, whatever. You just remind me of those kids from first grade. And you're a 45-year-old middle-aged white woman. You were on that playground with me. Did you learn nothing from our childhood? Help us all. They are mad. They say they want revival. They want the Lord. But when their idols are destroyed, they demonstrate to God they don't really want God. They want Baal. So they haven't learned, which is why God didn't deliver them yet. He's so smart like that. He's going to put you through the ringer and destroy every one of your idols till you have nothing left to trust in or boast in. And then you'll be able to be used. Until then, you can't be used. He doesn't use people with false idols in their heart. Verse 31, Joash said unto all that stood against him, will you plead for Baal? You're going to defend that God? Will you save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death, whilst it is yet morning. If he be a God, let him plead for himself. It's almost like dad begins to repent and see the light. Wait a minute, if Baal's God, let Baal defend himself. I thought we just cried out to Jehovah. We cried out to Jehovah and we wake up the next morning and Baal's dust. Please understand that when you cry out to God and you say, God, I want you, he takes you at your word and he begins to crush things that are sacred to you. And this is a crossroad for your Christian walk. He'll use a preacher to do it. He'll use a book on the Bible to do it. He'll use scripture to do it. He'll use a, an assignment to do it. But the second you say, Lord, I want you, I'll, whatever you want, Lord, don't be surprised when your idols start getting crushed and you start getting offended. He's taking you at your word. I want you, Lord. And that's when you have to submit and watch your idols burn. And be, at least be as smart as Joash and realize... We just called out to God yesterday, and today Baal's on fire. I said I wanted God, and today the preacher's destroying how I was raised. I said, Lord, fix me, deliver me, help me, whatever the cost. And pastor keeps stomping on hillbillies. Do <laughs> you think maybe the two coincide? Last two Wednesdays, we've exhorted on the Holy Ghost trying to get to this. We couldn't get to this for two weeks. Now we're here. Maybe somebody cried out to God and this is the answer. You have idols you didn't realize and they're keeping you from God, but you could see God. So Lord, what's keeping me from you? And today those things are being stomped. You can tell where you have idolatry by where you get offended. I get tickled because you guys know my preaching style. I stomp on everything. I stomp on white people. I should say the perversion of white culture. I stomp on African-American culture. I stomp on the Karen culture. I stomp on church culture. I stomp on corrupt preachers. I deal with us and our attitudes. I'm an equal opportunity corrector. I wear myself out. Many sermons I think, boy, that's wearing me out. I'm offended at me. I'm not coming back. <laughs> But I always marvel, you only get offended when I deal with your idol. Because the fat, white Karen doesn't get offended when I deal with the Latino culture. They don't even hear it. 
And the Africans don't get offended when I deal with African-American culture because they don't hear it. And the Yankees don't get offended when I make fun of when I make fun of Sparta people. People only get offended at their idols. That's how you know you have one. So let's just pause for a moment before we wrap this up. Where do I offend you? Because I can tell you tonight, I've not grieved God. I made some mistakes in my personal life today. I had to repent over and get some attitudes right. But in this service, I've not grieved God. I might have could said things a little less colorful, but did I offend you with the transgender thing? No, because that's not you. But somebody streaming, I guarantee you, I ruffled their feathers because they drink from that rainbow Kool-Aid. They eat those Skittles. You only get offended where you have an idol. But if you want God, those idols must be torn down. Amen. Somebody said, man, he hammers middle-aged white women. Isn't he married to one? Yes. And I was born from one. So you know it's not personal. And my wife doesn't get offended, neither does my mama. Because that's not an idol to them. But apparently it is to you, Karen. I'm a little offended by the Karen term because I can't use the term Jezebequa or Shanene because that's considered racist. But everybody knows Shanene is the black Karen. And that head gets to move and that finger gets to wagging. Oh, see, the blacks are offended because I went there with Shanene. That was a Martin Lawrence character. But he had black privilege. He could make fun of that culture. If I can only stay in my lane, I don't have privilege. So then I destroy that too because it's heresy. Anyway, if he be a God, let him plead for himself because someone's torn down his altar. Therefore, on that day, he called Gideon Jerubbabel, saying, let Baal plead against him because he's thrown down his altar. That is that shameful thing, or let Baal plead. And so what goes on from there is that now that Gideon's passed the test, he's proven to God, I don't have to cling to the culture of my upbringing. I have demonstrated through this sacrifice, I identify with Jehovah God and I acknowledge the sins of my family, my village, and my people. Be careful when you start identifying with people and those people aren't the body of Christ because you can end up being like Balaam, identify with those people and die with those people. That is why our people are not black, our people are not white, our people are not yellow, they're not brown, they're not BIPOC, they're not Euro-Anglo-Caucasian. Our people are the body of Christ. Amen. That's who I identify with. Those are my people. No, none go with me, I'll go with the body of Christ because the body of Christ is going to heaven. The folks I came from may not make it. You've got to be able to distinguish because our, our, our culture is so tribalistic. My people, my people, my people. Oh man, your people are going to hell. But God's people. Tear down those altars and idols and watch God say, all right, now when you blow the trumpet, everybody's going to come to you. And that's what he does. Verse 33, then all the Midianites and the Malachites, the children of the east were gathered together and they went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, which means it had not happened yet. 
Not until he got rid of his culture, not until he divorced his family's perversion did the Spirit of God finally come upon him. That ought to motivate you to burn idols real quick. I need you, God, show me what to burn next. I need you, God, show me what to get rid of. I need you, God, show me what to denounce next. After he passed this test, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he begins to fulfill his calling. The same calling he had in that wine press, but he could not fulfill it till he passed the family test. Could be a prodigal test, could be family pride test, could be a race test, a tribe test, could be a culture test, southern culture test, white culture test, black culture test, inner city culture test, suburban culture test. It doesn't matter. You got to pass the test before God will anoint you. Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. He blew a trumpet and Abizar was gathered after him. This is the same city that wanted to kill him. Obey God and it will all work out. Obey God and watch it all work out. The same people that wanted to kill him, he blows a trumpet under the anointing and they're like, whoa, whatever you want, we'll do it. We're gonna kill some Midianites. That's what we prayed about last week. Yeah. Probably God deals with you because nobody in your family has been able to escape yet. So might as well be the first person to do it. Be the one to break the so-called generational curse. Be the one to break free. Be the one to change your lineage, your genealogy, your last name. Be the one to do it. Just break free. Amen?